You're listening to Sacks in the Basement, a production of the Broadcast Basement Limited, where every show is 30 minutes of good and comes from a basement bar on the south side of Chicago. Pull up a stool, pour a cold one, and join us right now for Sacks in the Basement. Heard everywhere podcasts can be found and always at SacksInTheBasement.com. Slightly different format, still 30 minutes of Sacks. For fans by fans on this episode, but Ed's going to join me at the back end of the show because Scott Merkin is going to kick things off with an extended segment talking about what happened at the end of the season, what's likely going to happen in the offseason, kind of take a deep dive into what's going on behind the scenes with the White Sox. This episode of Sox in the Basement brought to you proudly by Cork and Carey at the Park, the official home of Sox in the Basement in the shadow of the ballpark at 33rd in Princeton. Still a great place to hang out during the offseason. Incredible food, great bar there. Plus, you got the location in Beverly as well. Cork wants to give a shout out today to a huge White Sox fan and Sox in the Basement listener, Harris Gurner, listening up in Vermont. Today is his last day in social work after 15 years. Congrats to you, Harrison. Thanks for listening. And I'm sure when you're not in Vermont and you're in Chicago, you're at the cork. Jumping on the phone line with us right now after a difficult year. He probably feels this sense of relief that it's over. And also, they're keeping him busy because they're not just doing nothing, the White Sox. Uh, we're seeing some moves already from Chris Getz in the front office. Scott Merkin's on here from MLB.com. How are you, Merk? Good. How are you doing, Chris? I'm good, man. So, look, last time we talked, uh, we didn't know what they were going to do with the front office. And then you see uh, Kenny and Rick are out. You also seem to get the feeling that even though they went internally with Getz, Getz wanted to change a lot of roles inside that building after observing things because a lot of people have been moved around, a lot of people that, that were always kind of linked as either a Rick guy or a Kenny guy seem to be heading towards the exit. There's a lot of turnover this week with within the uh, the coaching staff. Uh, what is it? What has been your impression of the the opening month or so of Chris Getz's tenure? Yeah, I think you know since as of taping of this, nothing is official. You know, we we've all heard, but nothing from the Sox is official yet on the coaches. I think I'll focus more on the front office people they added, and I think it's interesting because Chris went with guys who he's you know got a connection to. He went with guys from outside the organization, which is always a good thing. You know, maybe that was one of the criticisms when Chris was hired. Is that, and, and I think real highly of Chris. I also thought Rick, real highly of Rick and Kenny. So I'm not saying, you know, that comparing one to the other or one to the other two. But I think it's good, A, that there's one singular voice now. And I think Chris will do a good job. But that was the criticism was that, well, he had been there for seven years. He was part of this, you know, rebuild getting to the point where it's content and then nothing, you know, no contention two playoff wins out of the four years, I guess it would be 20, yeah, four years. Uh, the window was open, but I, I kind of stunned my answer there. He went outside the organization guys. He knew, but guys who have some sort of connection to the white Sox, for example, Josh Barfield really highly thought of in the industry. His dad, Jesse, uh, if you're a South suburban baseball aficionado, you know that his dad was a great player for Joliet central. And as Josh told us, kind of grew up going to White Sox games. So knows a little bit about White Sox games. Uh, Brian Bannister, great pitching mind. And his dad was part of that 83 team. His dad was probably part of one of the best second halves in the history of a starting rotation. Lamar Hoyt, Richard Dotson, and Floyd Bannister, I believe in 83, were something like 42 and six in the second half of that division championship season under Tony La Russa, his first division championship. 
and Floyd pitched for the Sox beyond that year, obviously. So there's a connection there. And then Gene Watson seems like a good baseball guy, good outgoing guy, real upbeat dude, really feels like things are going to be, you know, fixed here. What needs to be fixed is going to be fixed. He's known Pedro Rafael, the manager for the White Sox for, you know, I think almost 15 years, 12, 13 years. So you see the connection. You're getting outside voices. You're getting good baseball people there. They had good baseball people in before. I think it's almost kind of like when you talk about new people, it's, it's the equivalent of going up to someone and say, man, I love your new haircut. Like, man, the old one looked horrible. So I think it's, you, you want to avoid that because there were good baseball people in there before. It just didn't, it just for whatever reason did not work. But I like what Chris has done. Now, the one thing I will say is if the changes, you know, that we've all written about now, once they're official, this will be the third year that there is a new hitting coach. You know, it was Manichino in 2022. It was Castro in 23 and now a new one. And, it's tough to get any kind of continuity when you keep changing that. You know, it really is. I, I, I wrote in my newsletter today, it's kind of like a college football team that every three years changes offensive system. Well, how are you getting guys in there that are going to, you know, are, are going to, are going to mesh if you keep changing what you're doing? Ultimately it's on the players, right? I mean, <clears throat> you can tell certain players things over and over again, and it's great to remind them. And it's great to work with them, but ultimately they got to do it on the field. It's their performance. It's their responsibility to, to do it. So, you know, I, I, the one thing I do think in, in kind of wrapping up this long answer is that the more I see the, the toughness that hitting coaches go through, I believe it was Paul Canerco who once said he thought it was the toughest job in sports because, you know, it, when the team goes well, the team's great. When the team struggles, the hitting coach is bad. But I appreciate, I, I think Greg Walker, who did this from, was it like 03 to 11, I think he did it, I must say for nine years one of the most underappreciated coaches in Chicago sports history, not just White Sox history, because he did such a great job in this, and it's, it's a tough job to do. You talk about the hitting coach thing, and you're right. Greg Walker, even though his tenure did end, and at the time there were a lot of people calling for his head, the, the patience he preached is one of the big reasons why that 05 team did so well in the postseason, uh, got into to other teams' bullpens, and the strategy, at least during that run with that team, was a Greg Walker strategy, and you could see it on the field. When you when you talk about hitting coaches as well, I've always been confused as to why there's only really one, maybe one in an assistant hitting coach. You know, you look on a you look at a football team, and you've got 15 guys that are basically all overlapping each right. other. You look right. at a pitching coordinator in Bannister, and you go, hold on a second. There's going to be something that's going to be just. There's going to be somebody over it. There's going to be somebody else with a different style. There's going to be many voices in the room. I always thought you got power hitters. You got you got guys that are slap hitters. You got guys that hit for average. You maybe need a psychiatrist in there as well that work through problems with, that they have when they're up at the dish all by themselves. One guy can't do all of those things. Why don't teams have multiple hitting coaches with different things that they're responsible for? Well, they do have an excellent guy on staff there, uh, Dr. Fishbein, who works with them, you know, just on, I think, just, you know, visualization. Just I, I don't want to speak for what he does, but just like kind of daily issues. He's not there every day, but he's there quite frequently. But you make an interesting point, and we'll see if Chris does opt for a guy who's in charge of hitting along with the hitting coaches like he's done with Bannister. And then Ethan Katz, who looks like he's staying a pitching coach, and then replacing Kurt Hassler, who I think did a great job as bullpen coach, assistant hit pitching coach, and I know he'll play a, a big role in the system somewhere. They they theoretically, do I haven't officially named a pitching coordinator? Uh, Everett Tiford left to become the Auburn pitching coach in season, and Matt Zaleski, who does a great job, is one of the assistant pitching coordinators, and he kind of filled in that role. I don't know if he'll keep that role. Or maybe he'll go up to the major leagues and maybe Hassler will take that role. But this is just 
me speculating, nothing I've heard, you know, officially on that, but it is interesting. It is interesting if they'll go in that direction. And and I agree with what you said about, you know, Greg Walker, Mike Gellinger was right there with him. He was kind of the unofficial assistant hitting coach. He had a different title, but that's pretty much what his role was. But I think you have guys who, who would do that. Like, I'm still wondering if you have a guy who, if you have a guy like, um, I don't know, you know, Luis Robert or Eloy Jimenez, who are supremely talented, but maybe their game is not, you know, there's chase in everyone's game, right? Even the best hitters who strike out the low amounts, there's chase in their game. So being able to say, let's, let's stop chasing is great in theory, but maybe that's just not the style these guys follow. Now, again, you saw Robert control the strikes on a little more and that helped him. But again, Robert is just so ridiculously talented that I think whatever he does is going to turn out pretty well. And I think the biggest thing for Robert is he played, you know, and he said this over and over again, that when he's healthy and if he plays his goal was 150 games, he would have got there except he got hurt. The, you know, the, the, I think the Sunday game in Boston, nothing major, but did not play the last week. So he played 145 and you're starting to learn a little more, even 21, this is my 22nd season covering, I guess, 23 counting parts I did with the, another organization you learn that leadership is great. Leadership is great to have a vocal person, but you know what leadership is? It's availability, right? And availability for the best players. Like, you know, not taking away from anyone in the organization or anyone in any organization, but when you had a guy like Jose Abreu who played 150 some games every year and was getting it done, that makes a difference. And Luis Robert was a leader this year because he was doing it on the field. He was doing it by example. And that's the best kind of leader. So again, I, I, I think it's great what hitting coaches can do, what pitching coaches can do. They can certainly fix things. You know, even I talked to Tim Anderson over the weekend, one-on-one, and you know, even he said it's tough to implement changes in the season because you work on something and there's a game, and there's another game, and there's another game. It's not like you have four days to really drill something in. You know, I mean, it's, it's you're playing. So that's why it's good to kind of get after it in the offseason or maybe during spring training a little more. But it's good to make the corrections. It's good to see what you're doing wrong. But ultimately, it's the players who've got to correct it, right? I mean, you can – I mean, it's the same thing – with people in everyday life, right? You tell someone you're doing this, you know, you're always late and you say, okay, I'm going to start, you know, getting going right away in the morning at this point, and then be ready by noon. And then eventually suddenly you're like, okay, I have five minutes to get there again. So, you know, you can give all sorts of drills, all sorts of techniques, but it's the person who's got to do it. So coaches are important, but it's the players who've got to come through ultimately. Merck, if you're looking to replace the exterior windows, do some doors, patio doors, storm doors. Window and Door Superstore of Oak Forest is the place to go. Don't have some stranger walk into your home and show you a sample window. Go to their showroom. Full examples, glass designs on display. You're not looking at pictures in a book. You're seeing it in person. Owner in showroom, owner at the site, all Window and Door Superstore installers. They don't farm out the work. That's how they know it's going to get done right. 40 years they've been doing it in Oak Forest since 1985 with all major brands custom made and no stock items for a perfect fit. They're a half block east of 159th and Ridgeland at 6280 159th Street. See more at windowdooroakforest.com. So let's talk about uh, the big leader in the in the dugout in the clubhouse, and, that, and that's Pedro Grafal. I believe reportedly he's in the middle of a three-year deal. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong on that. I want to say that right, that was mentioned right. at some point. So. So this was year one, uh, year two, it seems like in 24 to most people, they look at this team. And I don't know if you agree with me. 24 is probably not likely as much of a contention year as 25 could be. 
especially when you look at money that could come off the books, uh, the more flexibility Chris Getz could have and the fact that he could build probably pretty quickly here. You're going to have Colson Montgomery showing up. He's been doing very well in the minor leagues. Uh, you know, you're waiting for some of this pitching to develop that's down there and you're waiting for some money maybe to free up to make some moves. So what is the possibility that Pedro's being given this year like, hey, go out there and prove it. But if he doesn't do uh, well or if Getz isn't satisfied with him, he could be out the door and Chris Getz walks in the 25 with a manager of his own choosing. Yeah, I think that's the case with a lot of people, right? I mean, I think that's the, the nature of the job. Buck Showalter is probably one of the best managers to ever do it. He won over 100 games last year, and you know they had a down season this year. And I'll, you know, granted, a new guy came in and charged. David Stearns took over, and now he's no longer the manager of the Mets. So I think that's an example where someone changed, came in, and I guess, you know, Chris is new-ish, even though he was there and him and Pedro go back to their Kansas City days. But I think it's 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 the nature of the beast for the most part. You know, like, I mean, I, I heard people talking about, you know, in San Diego, would A.J. Prowler make it through this season as the guy in charge? And I mean, geez, he was in the LCS last year, right? So, I mean, it, it's it's that day-to-day, year-to-year that you kind of, you know, got to be, be on call, you know, be, be ready to for a change. You know, the Sox to a person so far, do not like the word rebuild. And I think because they look at rebuild as like tearing it down completely, they've used, uh, I think retool is the word they use. Okay, that's fine. But here's the thing. The AL Central has become, become, I think, a little bit of a crutch because of the fact that as an overall division, it has not been good for three years. They had, what, three playoff teams in the pandemic season. But in 21, 22, 23, they've had exactly one team each year over 500 in the division. That's all well and good. We saw in 22, a team that, to use a Rick Hahn famous quote, was mired in mediocrity. The Sox were never more than five below. They were never more than five above, but they hung in it. But here's the thing is the Sox in 2021, I believe they had 93 wins and won the division. The Guardians in, in 2022, I think, ended up with 92 wins and won the division. The Twins this year, you know, kind of put on some wins late. They kind of got things together. And so did the Guardians in September. They had a great September in 22. The Twins finished with 87 and then just dispatched the Blue Jays in two games. I mean, the Sox won 61 games this year. So let's even use the Twins as a base mark. Of, I think they finished 87 and 75 in the regular season. Somewhere in that 86, 76. That's still 26 games jump. Now, you look at teams that, like the Diamondbacks who lost 102 years ago and now are on to the division series in the playoffs. I think, like you said, Two years is probably a possibility. You know, you got to be realistic. And maybe they are privately, but we'll see. We'll see by the moves that Chris starts making what happens. Nonetheless, though, contending next year has got to be at a minimum winning 86 to 88 games. You know, I, I look at this team and one of my big wishes for them is that they start filling needs with professional baseball players. It feels like, you know, you could go out and you can bring in somebody who might not be you know, well above league average in their OPS or may not be the greatest player at a position. But instead of relying on, well, we've got this guy in our system and we want to give him a chance or we've had this guy hanging around and maybe he'll have his best year, like putting some competition in there, you know, don't give second base up to just, oh, well, whoever wins in spring training, go out and sign somebody for four or five million dollars to go play second base. And if somebody behind him takes the job from him halfway through the year, that's a good thing. You know, and I, I, I just feel like that hasn't really been the focus. It's either been our prospects 
or can we get like this big free agent? And when we miss, there's not a lot sitting behind the misses. And that's where we've had these gaps in the team that have frankly contributed to the team not doing well over the last couple of years. What do you think, Merck? I mean, to me, it just feels like there's a, you hate saying depth issue, but there really is one. And they kind of have to start building more competition for some of these positions on the field. Well, I think that's one of the problems this year that was most glaring, glaring for, you know, the struggles was that the major league roster wasn't performing and there was not really any answers in the minor leagues. That's nothing against the guys who came up and, you know, played hard and went after it, Lenin Sosa. Obviously, Colas was, as a rookie, you know, and, and put on, a lot put on him a, a disappointment this year. There's no other way around it. You know, he did not produce good numbers. At times, he didn't have great baseball instincts, it seemed like, out there. And I think that's why they sent him down, you know, in September to kind of just focus on that. And people talk about they still, you know, they, not still, they, they should believe him, but they believe in his ability. So we'll see how he moves forward. I know Pedro told me in a, one of the one-on-ones he did with the beat, he did one-on-ones with all the beat writers at the end of the year. And he told me that, you know, the biggest thing for Colossus is he needs to keep playing. He needs innings. He needs to be out there and playing. And that may be the difference. But yeah, I, I think you got to find somewhere in between, you know, and that's, again, not taking anything away from anyone, but you don't have to go for the, the big guy, but you don't have to go for the guy who's kind of just holding a spot unless you have a spot, a guy, I don't want to say holding a spot. I don't know how to say this exactly, but you need to get someone who maybe will be there for a couple of years. Scott Merkin and every guest here on Socks in the Basement brought to you proudly by the village of Lamont. Want to experience a downtown with real history, great eats and drinks and green spaces filled with adventure. Visit the village of Lamont. Shop, dine, drink, explore. Go to the forge and shoot paintballs at each other. That's what my 15-year-old is doing today. See it all at lamontdowntown.com. And it's not just position players, Merck. You got to go out and get some guys to pitch in the rotation. Add a lot of depth to that because some of those guys that don't make the rotation move into the bullpen. They had a very veteran bullpen coming into this year. And obviously, you know, Liam ended up being one of the toughest stories. You know, with you know him announcing that he had non-Hodgkin lymphoma, and non-Hodgkin lymphoma, which we later found out was stage four, to probably the most, you know, one of the most inspiring stories in baseball when he came back, I believe, on May 29th, and his illness was in remission. But you know, he's now battling, recovering from Tommy John surgery. So let me let me ask you that. Uh, give me some predictions here. I think that they they likely spread out what they owe him and don't pick up the option. He just gets paid over the course. I think it's like 10 years is how that goes if they do that. And I think they may pay you a million dollars to to let Tim Anderson go and try to build a bridge to Colson Montgomery in a cheaper way to free up money. What do you think they're going to do with those two guys? Because that's probably the two biggest questions. Yeah, I, I, I'm not sure on Liam Yikes. I'm not sure what, you know, how they'll, they'll work things there. I mean, it's just too hard to guess because he's such a valuable commodity just as a person in that clubhouse and as a person in that organization with Tim, see, I've known Tim since he was drafted basically. And I've seen Tim have some ups and downs. As he, as he told me on Saturday, people have seen from the good, the bad, and now this year, the ugly, which is actually a pretty good, pretty good quote from him among a number of good quotes and good analysis from him. But I believe he's going to bounce back. I believe that he was hurt in a way that was more than we knew when he had that injury in the uh, rundown play early in April in uh, at target field and that that was his front leg and it just affected him all year swinging the bat and i'm sure when you have that kind of injury you're compensating for it then you have to start doing things that maybe take you off mechanically he knows what's at stake you know i mean he knows if if the option gets picked up this year this is basically his last year before free agency 
and if he wants to get any kind of significant deal, and I, I think forget about the money, forget about the money. I, I think Tim is just a pride thing. Tim knows he's a better player than what he showed this year, and he knows he will be a better player than what he showed this year. So I would, I would still be surprised if the Sox did not pick up that option. Now, picking up the fourteen million dollar option doesn't mean even in the short term they couldn't trade him before the season even started, right? And get something in return for him doesn't mean that if he had a great first half and Colson is coming on strong and they decide to give him an opportunity, then, you know, an early opportunity that they couldn't trade him at that point. It also doesn't mean he told me during that interview that he's willing to play second base. He said he's not getting into any kind of thing with the team right now. Is it second or short? He just wants the opportunity. He said it's so tough just to get opportunity. He just wants to be out there. So maybe he comes back as a team second baseman. Who knows what the thing is, but I really believe they're going to bring him back. Now, if it was, you know, uh, I, I just think with the one year, knowing what they do about Tim, knowing the fight in him, that I think, you know, he's going to bounce back, and I think they're going to bring him back for that 24 season. Now, again, you know, there's there's a couple options. You know, they like you said, they could move on, but I think there's a lot, there's more options in bringing him back and keeping him than just simply letting him go. Scott Merkin from MLB.com. Thanks so much, Merk. Okay, Chris, thank you. Rich Zemar sitting down here. He's on the broadcast basement on demand radio network. What's up, buddy? How's it going? Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, uh, you, you're a busy guy right now. You got a lot going on. It's you're, super busy. You're in your busy season, and, and you know it, it's off season for the White Sox, and it's uh, it's on season for Butch. And uh, the main thing you do is help businesses, small and big with their health insurance, right? For sure. And the fourth quarter is usually when the renewals are coming in, they're trying to plan for the new year. And a lot of businesses feel stuck, right? Uh, Just stuck with the renewal. They kind of blindly get spreadsheets, uh, comparisons, and they feel like they don't know where to go. And it's usually the top three uh, expenses on a expense sheet for a business. How does somebody get your help? 708-535-3006. And then we go through uh, an evaluation we call the Elite Benefits Playbook. All right. And it can get started like... Like right now, is right that now like something is they can do? Perfect, ideal. The, the employees are still going to have health insurance, like when this is all said and done. Absolutely. All right, Butch is my guy. If, if you're either the owner or you're somebody that makes those financial decisions, it's a big cost for anybody that's trying to get it for employees, and yeah, you don't want to ignore that, right? Hundred uh, percent. All right, and now down here at the Nine Foot Homemade Oak Bar is Ed. Welcome, buddy. Hey, uh, yeah, I showed up finally. <laughs> <laughs> Merck had a lot to say. And normally Merck always has a lot to say, but in the regular season, I do a lot more like, you know, editing down, but I'm going to let him just go in the off season. You know, I'm just going to let him just do his thing. Yeah. Just, just let him roll. Let yeah. him, let him, let him free form. Let him stream of consciousness. Let him, let him just get it off his chest. Whatever, whatever he needs. You ask him one question and then he answers three more than I was thinking of asking, but he gets to them. So I'm just letting him go. That's that's what I, that's what I, I'm planning I, on doing. This is this is White Sox therapy time. Is what is really what the off season is, right? This is the time. This is talk therapy. This is psychotherapy. This is this is us working through as a group collectively all of the things that the White Sox gave to us, all of the mental issues that the White Sox gave us over the past few months. We're going to get through this together, kids. We really are. We right. really, really are. So the one thing that he talked about, though, that I, I'm i sorry, like I, I don't want to get into a 45-minute like back and forth on a 30-minute show with, uh, with such a wonderful reporter in Scott Merkin who's so around the team that he gives us so much good information. 
But I also think that when you're around a team, you fall in love with the players. Just like I fell in love with the Berger family after, you know, Ashlyn was on the show a couple of times and Jake was on. Just like when I was doing small town radio in Bakersfield, California, the guy that covered the Bakersfield Condors hockey team. Just nobody could do any wrong on it, right? Because you get to know the players. I get that he loves Tim Anderson. In fact, every time he brings him up, he's like, I've known T.A. since the moment he was drafted. And that's wonderful. But I'm sorry. It makes so much sense to take the $13 million you clear and use it in the offseason, then roll the dice on him getting better and then trying to make a trade. That, that just seems like you're you're really putting a lot more variables into the equation when you can just take the $13 million, go shop for what you want because Colson Montgomery is eventually going to be the guy. And the idea that, well, T.A. will play second if you want him to, do you want a $14 million second baseman that hit the way that Tim Anderson has hit over the last year and then some because he didn't do well towards the end of the season before that? Look, one way or the other, you got to say that the team is going to move on from T.A. before they're back into competition, right, in, in, in the competitive mode. He, he's he's either coming off the books this offseason or he's coming off next offseason. If you're talking about him getting better and trying to trade him, that's the, the sort of pipe dreaming that you don't want to necessarily gamble on. And, and at the end of the day, none of the conversation at this point about moving on from a player from for the Chicago White Sox has anything to do with what kind of a guy they are, okay? And, and we're not talking about clubhouse cancers. We're not talking about tweaking one or two things to bring this team into World Series competition. So this has nothing to do with, like, T.A. getting into the fist fight. This has nothing to do with anything other than the fact that $13 million is enough money to go out and maybe accomplish two things, and you're doing it by losing somebody that it isn't really it doesn't create an issue by losing him from a baseball standpoint he's he's not part of the plan at best he's part of 2024 which everybody seems to agree on is not a competitive year because the team the team needs too much there's he's we're not one player away for for next year so i don't think there's anybody untouchable other than maybe Lewis Robert Jr. right, right? i mean here's the thing there's, you look at Tim Anderson's stats last year and you look at his career and then you tell me if there was a guy like Tim Anderson we'll just call him you know uh, I don't know. Andy Andrew, Timerson. Andrew, yeah, Andy Timerson. If Andy Timerson was out there and he was a shortstop who was willing to Good move over to second 70. base, and Andy was only willing to sign a one-year $13 million deal, because I'll call it $13 million because you got to pay him a million to go away on the $14 million option. If he was only willing to, pay, to, to take a one-year $13 million deal in 2024 for you, and he walked in with that, showing that he was uh, he was getting towards the second half of his career. His best years are probably behind him, and you didn't know him, and he hadn't been the face of the franchise for a couple of years in there. Would you give him $13 million? And I think the answer is very clearly no, because it would be a waste looking at all the things that the team needs to do, just like Liam Hendricks, like a great story, as Merck brought up. And he's a great guy, and he's got an incredible amount of value. But with all of the holes, do you really need a superstar closer for just one more year, mind you, it's not like you're you're getting rid of him with three years left on his deal. What does he give you in 24 that all of a sudden is worth like wasting the money on that when in reality he's only going to help you with a couple extra wins and you're not a championship contender the way that you're built? So, I mean, look, I, I get we love these guys and we have their jerseys and we've gotten to know them and we, we may have become like, you know, have a personal relationship with them. Like the White Sox are constantly sending out those stupid surveys, not like, do you think this is a guy who's a good shortstop or a good outfielder or a good pitcher do you connect with this player like that's that game 
I don't care if I connect with you or not. What value do you give me to create more wins and make the team better in the long term so we can get back to being a good team that celebrates like they were in Philly the other night? And and Liam is a, is an even bigger example. I, I understand that dude's probably a clubhouse leader, right? I understand what value he has, both intangible and tangible to a team, when he's healthy. Can we not forget that his arm is not healthy right now? He, you talk about him contributing one or two wins, that might be literally how, based on how many games he plays, not even wins above replacement, just, just the fact that you know this guy's coming off of surgery now. He's going to be a, a reclamation project to a certain degree, and I understand what Tommy John is and how guys come back, and he's probably going to be fine. But they're generally down in the following year. And, 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 and he's not going to be ready for the start of the season, right? And if he needs some time to rehab, if he if he has any kind of a setback, you know, some guys will get up there, they'll get some tendonitis or something like that, they'll have to be shut down. Sometimes they're coming up, the elbow's good, but the shoulder's had a year off now, and it's a little sore and a little slow. There's a lot of things that can go wrong with a guy coming off of Tommy John. And if you are going to be a team that takes a chance on Liam Hendricks next year, you're going to be a team that came close but didn't quite make it, right? He's going to be in Seattle, for example, where they might gamble that, hey, you know, with the team we've got, if we compete again, the second half of the year, if we can get Liam Hendricks as our closer, that's pretty good. We'll let him rehab up there. You know, we'll, we'll do that. So you're going to see something like that. This team does not need – they they don't need their established leadership from what has become a failed attempt at a championship window. They need to take what they can carry forward to the next run, use 2024 to build on – what's here and try and find some pieces to start building forward for 25 on forward. And if you're looking for the guys that are going to be the face of the franchise and clubhouse leaders, that has got to come from the group of guys that you're carrying forward, right? They need to find that or somebody who is definitely going to be here for a number of years. And I agree. I will always look back fondly on Tim Anderson's run as the White Sox starting shortstop. I will. I, you know, it, as, as a fan, I will look upon it fondly. I'm not going to leave with a bad taste in my mouth. It's just one of those things where sometimes it's just time. And with Tim Anderson, I think it's probably just time, and the money could be used elsewhere. With Liam Hendricks, the circumstances were different. If he was healthy, I might sit there and say you could make a case for him, but he's not healthy. I don't think he can make a case for it. There's a lot of guys that you got to kind of feel heartless, I think, in this offseason because if, for example, Chris Getz gets a package for a guy that is a popular player that you don't want to see go. He can go say hi, mom, somewhere else. Socks in the basement. Socks in the basement. Socks in the basement. Socks in the basement. Heard everywhere podcasts can be found and always on SocksInTheBasement.com.